What ho, folks! I'm Lillian Crawford, a freelance film critic and historian focusing on women and post-war British cinema. Welcome to the Listen to Lillian podcast, part of an ongoing blog I've recently set up on Substack to develop my research on my own terms. Simply go to listentolillian.substack.com to subscribe for a bumper crop of reviews, essays, and feature articles, with upcoming series including a deep dive into the output of Ealing Studios, dance in the films of Paul and Pressburger, and all things Carry On, James Bond, and Derek Jarman. Each episode, I invite my guests to select a British film to discuss, from the silent era to recent releases. All I ask is they pick a film they think is particularly interesting in its representation of female characters or its approach to queer subject matter. For this episode, I've invited my friend and ardent cinephile James Carragie to join me for a chat. The film he's chosen for us to discuss is Alan Clark's 1974 play for today, Pender's Fen. The film is about an adolescent boy called Stephen, the son of a vicar, who encounters angels, Edward Elgar, and King Pender. For a taste of the film, here's a trailer. Oh my country, I say over and over, I am one of your sons, it is true. I am. I am. Yet how shall I show my love? Hello, James. How are you? Hi, Lillian. I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not doing too bad. L- looking forward to talking about Pender's Fen with you, because uh, it as... is a fascinating film. Yes, it's very much... I looked at like your, your first episode, and I feel like, um, ooh, in terms of dramatic contrast between one film to the next... Going from, you know, like, oh, you know, like, Naughty's classic with um, Kira Knightley to, um, oh, yes, really aggressively strange folk horror uh, slash political commentary on Christian imperialism um, and being gay, you know. Um, but it is very much, a, I think, a film that's very much, like, in line with what you want to talk about on your podcast. Oh, absolutely. So, and um, that variety is very much appreciated, I think. That's what this series is all about. So I'm, yes. I'm delighted that you picked something, something that I'd sort of heard of because I had done some reading into the Play for Today series. And um, mm. this one felt like an anomaly within that series. So how familiar are you with the work of Alan Clark? So I know that he did stuff like Scum and The mm-hmm. Firm and mm-hmm. sort of gritty, quite violent British films. So mm-hmm. this film didn't seem to me what I expected an Alan Clark film to be like. Because mm-hmm. I've, I've written an essay about Alan Clark's um, films, specifically his films about the troubles in Northern Ireland. I wrote an essay uh, comparing and contrasting Elephant and Contact, two masterpieces of, of form, by the way, very, very much um, two of the best films of their kind 
very formative influence on directors like Paul Greengrass, Gus Van Sant, who made, um, you know, his elephant. His which, own elephant, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, which interpolated like his sort of, you know, minimalist, edgy kind of style to, you know, um, American school school shootings. But, um, but Alan Clark, in the school of like, I guess, what we'd sort of think of as British social realism, you know, um, Mike Lee, Ken Loach, who both, of course, started off making plays for today and working with BBC, Alan Clark always stuck within that system, only ever going outside r- rarely to like make theatrical productions. Um, you pointed out Scum, which was originally a BBC play for today, um, which had been made, but was censored by the B. It was too, you know, extreme for them. So he made his own theatrical version for cinemas. And then he made a more lighthearted film, um, an adaptation of the play, Rita Sue and Bob 2, by the playwright of The Arbor, Andrea Dunbar. Um, and working in the system, Alan Clark became this very unique, distinct voice, you know, one of those rare, quote-unquote, television auteurs, as seen by, you know, some film academics. But in this stage of his career, it was I think it was very much a case of, like, um, Alan Clark, you know, picking up works by writers, you know, also working within the BBC system. So in terms of the the surreal nature of Pender's Fence, I think that's more to do with the writer, David Rudkin, which isn't to say that this film doesn't fit in with Alan Clark's wider filmography per se, because one of the things that really draws me to Alan Clark is his depiction of individuals, outsiders, I don't want to say rebels because that kind of romanticizes them a bit, which Alan Clark would never really do. But um, societal misfits, I suppose, being crushed by systems in a, in a sense. And you can sort of see this particularly, you know, within the confines of, of scum, you know, in its brutal Borstal setting. And here, in the case of Pender's Fen, in the boarding school in which its main protagonist, you know, resides as he's very much, you know, trying to figure out his own sense of masculinity, his own sense of British identity. And it all just kind of comes apart at the seams in this really um, fantastical way, which I'm, I'm completely besotted with. Yeah, but I suppose what what's interesting is that obviously if this is a the word play for today, sort of mm-hmm. a lot of those those films could quite easily be done on the stage. I'm thinking in particular mm-hmm. of Abigail's Party or yeah, um, yeah, the Mike Lee plays or that, you know, those could and are done on the stage. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is very much a film. It feels like a part of the folk horror films that are emerging in Britain in the 70s, the sort of interest in paganism that we see in like The Wicker Man. In terms of what this film is doing differently to those other plays, uh, how would you contextualise it within those two trends that we see in British cinema in the 70s? So in terms of folk horror, uh, I'm not very qualified to speak much on folk horror. Um, I've seen The Wicker Man. But the thing I find interesting about Pender's Fen is it's almost pro-pagan approach. It's very, in fact, it's, it's not so much pro-pagan as it is anti-Christian in a sense, or anti-Christian imperialism, it kind of posits paganism as the sort of, you know, natural kind of order that's sort of been around, you know, for thousands and thousands of years. Um, That's also been a sort of way of communities, individuals have been able to like resist against the um, 
the power structures of feudalism and later imperialism and capitalism as well, which I find completely fascinating. You can sort of see this symbolically in the depiction of the, the mother and father of England, these two figures who initially, when we, we see them, they're in a newspaper article. Yeah. They, brought out this, they brought out this injunction against this controversial television play written by uh, a local writer. Who was Jesus or something. Yeah, who who was Jesus Christ or something like that. It's not a very subtle no. um, <laughs> analogy, as it were. If there's one thing that this television play isn't, is subtle. <laughs> the symbolism. But... Well, you say, you say that there is, there is a subtlety to it. And I think in particular in its portrayal of homosexuality, it's very mm. subtle. It's done through gesture. There's that beautiful scene where Stephen falls down on his bike and he starts sort of imagining that the name of Pinvin has changed to more towards yeah. Pender's Fen and the champ who's he's sort of got a, a crush on that he's sort of the trying milkman. to the milkman who who, oh. who he's sort of trying to repress his um his attraction towards comes and sort of helps him up and he the way that the camera in close-up sort of lingers on his hands moving down his arms is exquisitely beautiful but it's it's certainly the closest that the film comes to any sort of explicit portrayal of homosexuality but it's there's also like lots of like various coded references, you know. And when you 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 mentioned the milkman when the, when he initially like comes to the door, there's this sort of rather slightly knowing conversation between the the priest and his wife, you know, about milk lad, hardly original, <laughs> which I rather chuckled at uh, yes. quite a lot. So that, I think that's sort of very much like you know. Uh, aware of that and then of course there you have the the first dream sequence as well which again hardly unsubtle <laughs> rug um ruggers sort of you know covered in mud wrestling with each other it's very um i wanted to ask you about how because you've mentioned um before you're a fan of derek jarman how how derek jarman-esque that whole sequence is um yeah Visual parallels certainly um i mean obviously this is what 1974 so Jarman's coming a bit later on um sort of into the 80s and early 90s but yeah I, th I think that sort of homosexuality as fantasy rather than sort of an act that is mm -hmm. actually performed is very much a mm -hmm. Jarman-esque sort of idea that you know if you watch Jarman's films there's very rarely sort of realistic um <laughs> except perhaps in some of the historical films but even then it's often trying to understand what's going on in the mind of a homosexual rather than what they're actually able to engage in but what I would say that that sequence in particular reminds me of perhaps more than more than Jarman is um, Beaudrevive by Claire Denis. And um, oh. so the scene that I'm referring to in particular, there's a number of these scenes in, in Beaudrevive where the um, legionnaires are sort of on a plane and mm. <laughs> Billy Budd by Benjamin Britten, lots of yes. bees there, um, <laughs> is playing. So you mm -hmm. have this sort of very loud, non-diegetic music, which Eve Sedgwick has sort of analysed Melville's homosexuality being expressed in Billy Bard and then Britain mm -hmm. in his own music as a homosexual composer. So it's sort of writ quite large, but it's these men without any shirts on sort of moving yeah. slowly um, mm -hmm. to the music. And it, it has that queer aesthetic that the dream sequences in Pender's Fen have. Um, and that's mm -hmm. what it reminded me of and I think there's a real 
beauty to that in this film. Oh, definitely. But there's also like just this very like, I always find it difficult to whether I should classify Pender's Fen as a horror film or just a film of some rather scary moments in it. Um, like particularly, I remember the first time I, I watched it um, in the dream sequence. And then all of a sudden the demon manifests on Stephen's bed. And it's that extreme close up on his face. And it's not even like, there's no like sort of like, it, it's not really a jump scare or anything like that, but like just the way it's framed just leaves you with this sense of just like quiet terror, not only because it's such a startling image, but also because it's just kind of like, you know, a, a metaphor of unrepressed sexuality that I, I found so much to like relate to. Yeah, that I just drew so much from and I was like, oh yes, this is what it's sort of like to be repressing your identity. And it's sort of like literally on like right on top of you as well, like a, a form of sleep paralysis, if you like. Bringing it back to Jarman though, another thing I find interesting in this film of Jarman is that is Pender's Fen's fascination along with Jarman with the mythology of England Absolutely. in a in a sense. So Jubilee in particular. Mm. As a, as a sort of um, tying the past to the present and how you know because in Jubilee it's Queen Elizabeth the first who's sort of looking towards the future um, of this this very strange sort of dystopian punk version of of Britain in the 80s under under mm. Thatcher um, and how that you know it's sort of what would happen if Thatcher continued to destroy Britain and in this case um, obviously pre-Thatcher it's 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 still this idea of sort of something there is something rotten in the state of England you know it's, yeah. it's yeah. there's something that's corrupting what's going on or at least it is in the mind of Stephen and he very much feels that there's an atheistic corruption that exists mm -hmm. and then when he starts to realize that that's coming partly from within himself and possibly even from his own father mm. his whole world and identity is thrown into this incredible existential crisis where he's having these nightmares um he's even sort of envisaging um king pender rising up out of the fen and you know it's it's quite spectacular but it mm. does feel like that and and i say that as someone who was raised in in the church you know the, the sort of protestant british church tradition as someone um who sort of is quite high functioning when i read the bible and when i would hear sermons and it was like you you know um thought crime is very much a thing <laughs> um you must right. confess your sins i took that to heart deeply for many years so then when I was sort of questioning my own sexuality um, and identity in my teenage years I felt you know I, I felt that that was some sort of test or punishment or or something as as Stephen does in, in the film mm. and that froze everything that you fought so far in your life or everything that you believe that you've been taught into question mm. and I think what's quite nice is that you know he goes on that arc and actually towards the end he does loosen up a bit. He's not quite mm. the sort of sermonizing boy that he is at the start yeah. of the film to, to, to his classmates who are sort of like, what is this guy going on about? <laughs> um, but it's understandable because he's the son of a parson 
must say parson and not priest because he gets upset yes. about that. Um, <laughs> the, so, the adopted son of a parson. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> <laughs> kind of like hard not to sort of talk, discuss that aspect of it. Though, no, we have because, to. Um, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> People should see the film perhaps before listening <laughs> to this yes. podcast. I think that's very much um, recommended. But but just to sort of like go back to, to what you were saying, I, I, I was never brought up in a, a religious background my my father's a, a lapsed catholic though and i do have catholic relatives in ireland which always there's a hang on my mind to some degree but i was a scout and i did go to an old boys school um so i was kind of like brought up in you know in a very masculine environment you know in a in a sense and oddly like you'd you'd think that like that would make me sort of realize my my sexuality at a young age but I, ironically enough going to an old boys school made me more comfortable in my heterosexuality i didn't quite go what Stephen went through here. Although there was sort of that, you know, these like masculine rituals that you sort of have. Um, we, we didn't quite have a, like rucking is what they call it. Like it's not quite rugby as, as it were, but these sort of, you know, repeated ingrained rituals that are sort of like, you know, meant to, meant to affirm your own sense of masculinity, um, which Stephen is just simply unable to, you know, um, participate in. One, one thing that I find very interesting is that eventually, like as the film goes on, you know, um, Stephen seems to get in trouble, you know, with the headmaster, you know, um, they sort of label him as an outcast, but we're never explicitly shown why that is. We're only ever seen one instance where, um, where Stephen like fails to sh show up to like an, an army drill practice and he's crying in the locker room. But with that sole exception, we never really see why he attracts the ire of his teachers. And it's almost as if the way it's framed and edited, it's as almost as if they, they know of his sexuality they, and, that, and they're punishing him for it, which I, I find fascinating. It's, it's, a, it's a, a weird choice, but a very deliberate one, I feel, which places you in the mindset of Stephen, who, and despite this being a visual and thematic anomaly in Clark's filmography is very much a Clarkian protagonist or anti-hero in that sense. The only exception to that being at the ending of the film, where unlike, say, Gary Oldman's um, Bex in The Firm or um, Tim Roth's neo-Nazi skinhead in Made in Britain, Stephen is able to like come to terms with himself and achieve some semblance of peace. And even in the concluding speech by Pender, he's almost like this Arthurian character, you know, destined to fight the um, evil forces of darkness that lie, lie underneath England. It's, it's all very primordial and weird. I love it. Yeah. I can't believe King Pender said gay rights. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <It's> just, yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think that that's particularly interesting in terms of how he's seen by his teacher, because we see, as you say, he's sort of, he's not allowed into the sick form club, whatever that is, and because he doesn't join in with rugby as he, perhaps mm. he, he ought, supposedly, mm. you know, in this <laughs> hyper-masculinized environment. But he's really clever, and he's mm very academically gifted, particularly in his analysis of music, um, mm. which is how the film opens. I mean, that certainly gripped me straight away, the sort of, you know, <laughs> roaring Elgar music mm. that's coming from the, the, um, the Dream of Garantius and, and the way that the landscape is sort of shown as gorgeous establishing shots at the beginning with the music and then close-ups of the score itself which and as he, he and sort of voiceover is, is reading his own 
essay back to himself on, on Gorontius, which is, you know, immediately establishes the themes of the film musically, because Gorontius is based on a text by St. John Henry Newman, um, mm-hmm. who himself was, you know, a very prominent member of the church in England, but was also almost certainly homosexual. There's a lot of scholarship on it's not explicitly known, and I think sure. that to some extent the Catholic Church has probably <laughs> tried to hide that aspect ah. of his personal life. Um, that checks but, out. The, but, the, but the text is about a man who is in purgatory because he's very pious and he, mm. you know, he has what what's sort of described as a good soul, but he can't quite get into heaven because he has this conflict within himself. And that I, I very much feel that David Rudkin in the screenplay is reading that that conflict as one of sexuality because it's mm. the com- it's the same conflict that Stephen's going through. So regardless of what Newman was actually going through, mm. that's very much what how it's being read in this film. And there's also the possible homoeroticism of Elgar's own music, particularly the Enigma variations, which have been read as in the way that he sort of dedicates that music to his friends. There is a sort of repressed a homoeroticism to that music and, and the way that it's it's framed. So that's all there, but it's all very mysterious and it's all very sort of under the surface. And that's that's true of the whole film, but it's all sort of what lurks beneath the surface of the film, what lurks beneath the surface of Pender's Fen itself and what ancient pagan history lies there. And in playing that music, in playing it on the organ of his school, he sort of causes the earth to crack and uprises the, the angel um, that, that Gerontius speaks to. It's a very powerful visual metaphor and a musical one as well. So I, I think mm. it, that's in particular where this works as a work of film rather than one of theatre is that mm. there are all of these cinematic aspects to it. It reminds me, I mean, the thing that the obvious parallel is um, Tony Kushner's Angels in America, where mm-hmm. the angel sort of descends and, and talks to Prior Walter when he's he's got AIDS and, and he, he's sort of facing his a conflict of identity and his relationships with people and how AIDS has sort of rocked America. This is obviously pre-AIDS, so it's not Mm -hmm. acting on that level, it's just the the angel is appearing to Stephen purely Mm. because of his sexuality. And the the angel itself is actually, um, I'm glad that you brought on the subject, because the the angel is very androgynous. Absolutely. It's, um, you know, all all painted in gold, um, and Stephen explicitly says that he doesn't see himself as man or woman. Well, yeah, that's that's interesting. I think you're right. It's it's not just an issue, a, a matter of sexuality. It's that he almost doesn't. He's almost sort of stuck in purgatory, purgatory of identity. That he's not mm. really sure what his identity is, and that includes between the binaries of of gender, I think, particularly in sort of his his interest in in Greek mythology and mm. and Gerontius as as sort of an idea of, of Greek mythology as well. I mean, I, I think that if we were to describe what the angel actually looks like in this film, it would be like depictions of Hermaphroditus, the, the mm. god who has both genitals and, and, and does have that, as you say, androgynous appearance. I, w- I would say that for Stephen, God and the angels are gentleness. And he, I think there's a certain appeal to him in that, because his own past is, is now 
shrouded in mystery that's thrown up as well um in terms of well i don't actually know where my parents come from and he said he goes to see who is it he is it like the church gardener or someone she's she's working in a garden i think it, it's it's the wife of the of the tv playwright that's right um because he has a fascinating discussion with her about <laughs> adoption and identity mm. and he says well i like the fact that I know part of what makes me up. He knows how he's been nurtured, that there's an openness now to his biological nature and the genes that have been passed down to him because he knows that it's not actually coming from the parents who raised him. And he likes the idea that that gives his life more possibilities. So I think I think he likes the fact that predestination is now is no longer a factor in his life. He doesn't have to look at his father or his mother and think, mm. oh, I'm just going to end up exactly like you. <laughs> he also says in that exchange, can homosexuals have children? Which is which which is fascinating because the implication of that to someone listening mm. to it, I don't know if this is just as as a modern audience, but the implication of asking that is, can I have children? No, oh, I, I agree completely, especially also because in the in the period in A in which the period in which which was made, 1974, and B in a television play that was broadcast to a, a primetime audience as well, which I, I find fascinating. I mean, it, it's, it, it's something that you would have only thought that like would have been in like, I don't know, the, ni- the, the 1990s or in British underground cinema, let alone for, you know, made by the National Broadcasting Company. I, I think it's a, a shame that we don't sort of get these kind of like one-off sort of programs that are able to like push the, the narrative and, and visual envelope of of the day in which they in which they were made. Um, I just want to like shift the top conversation slightly though to like just one more seminal scene of the of the film, which um, which didn't really click with me the first time. But now that you've sort of like provided your your knowledge on music, is the is the compass the literal conversation that Stephen has with Edward Elgar, which is such a I, I mean considering that this is a film in which pagan deities rise out of the ground and and create magic you you'd think that the the scene with the well-known british composer would be the least obtuse but um but perhaps i've well it's the um, most enigmatic that's that's yes indeed (laughs) but it's true it's true i mean i i found it of all of the scenes i found that one perhaps the hardest to decipher what what's your take on it well now that you've sort of mentioned the 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 um homoerotic over undertones of elgar's music part and you know and later on you know the, the priest in a sort of like effort to reassure his son of his identity says oh even elgar was was part welsh you know it almost feels like if, if you'd allow me just to be like slightly crass like you know a sort of an older you know homosexual sort of imparting advice onto like you know a younger generation in, in that sort of sense. As, as weird as that may sound, it's a sort of like mentor-like scene as well. And, and with almost like, with, with paternalistic overtones as well, in like Elgar sort of taking the, the shape of a father figure in, in Stephen's life. Um, but it's also just, as, as I said, um, a fascination with the mythology of England, you know, I mean, Elgar's music is just so associated with like English notions of patriotism, land of hope and glory, um, Nimrod, of course, and it's that sort of like deconstruction of this person, of this person's art, which is often trumpeted by like, you know, the most jingoistic of Englishmen. And it's sort of just sort of like stripping the layers back within that and saying like, if Elgar were around today, he probably wouldn't want to be associated with the kind of people who, who interpret his art in such 
exclusionary terms, if you like. Yes, and I I think that the use of Elgar in this film mirrors very effectively what Ken Russell's filmography looks like in the 70s. Um, hmm. he, so he starts making these films, um, again, for television, Song of Summer, which is about <clears throat> Frederick Delius, another English composer and he 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 makes um Marla in 1974 and other films about composers moving towards sort of the absolute madness of Lishtomania which is like mm. <laughs> he he goes from sort of doing these fairly straightforward biopics of of, com- of mm. British composers to something utterly bonkers <laughs> so it's not something that you, again it's not something you'd associate with Anne and Clark that that sort of biopic and the i mean ken russell's wasn't wasn't gay but his films are packed with sort of queer aesthetics and erotically uh, tinged <laughs> erotically homoerotically tinged i would yes. say yeah very 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 strongly um mm. in his in his films and the same with with jarman jarman also is fascinated by the sort of legacy of possibly queer historical figures so caravaggio Edward II, Ludwig Wittgenstein, you know, he, he makes the, the sort of biopics that are being made in British cinema at this time aren't the sort of very comfy, cosy thing that you'd get at a silver screening sort of on a Thursday mm. afternoon now, where it's mm. like, this is what Alan Turing was like. And it's like, it's nothing like what Alan Turing was like. The reason why I talk about these films is because it's impossible to put an obvious label on historical figures because these people mm. they wouldn't have had the words and labels that we use today to describe mm-hmm. to self-identify so mm. the only way to communicate sexuality and identity in these films is to do it through aesthetics and the way that music and and film is used to tell those stories so i think that i would very much put pender's fen within that narrative of film and a certain type of sort of i don't want to say speculative though i mm. suppose to some extent it is speculative of of mm-hmm. sexuality of of historical people and and it's interesting that this film is doing it in a very different way that you know this isn't mm. a film this isn't called elgar it's it's not yeah. a, it's not a film about him but mm. it's it's very strongly there and i think the fact that elgar actually himself sort of appears in the film is is particularly fascinating again is it a question of queer icons of history of sort of people that that sort of fantasy of if you could invite anyone to a dinner party and have a chat conversation with them, who would it be? And in this case, it's Elgar. And it's like, in a very sort of circumlocutory way, how would we talk about queerness? I, I think the key to this film, I think it's it's a film of very much of two different creative individuals at the focus of it. Rudkin on the one hand, who I think this film is sort of meant to be like, semi-autobiographical catharsis for him, you know, in a sense of him coming to terms with his own identity, um, bringing that in the form of the screenplay and the, and the visual motifs. And then you have Alan Clark, who I think is, not that I think he wouldn't have been unsympathetic to the film's um, LGBT themes. Um, he was, you know, very passionately left-wing and, you know, anti-conservative. But I think he he would have been more interested in the socio-political element of it. And there's quite a lot of socio-political themes that are very explicitly sort of stated in the film as well, most notably in the in the town hall scene. 
where um, the, the, the television playwright, who one could also interpret as being an analogue for Clark himself, being uh, this sort of or object of... Yeah, or, yep, or Redkin, or, or a mixture of both, perhaps, you know. They probably had a lot of empathy with each other as, you know, trying to, like, get their, their art out, you know, Clark in partic- particular in his numerous battles with the with the BBC over trying to, like, you know, get his content out there. And you have, and you have like, yeah, this this television play uh, playwright, you know, being set upon by the villagers who are just so, you know, almost apoplectically outraged at his, you know, um, at his themes and content, you know, even as he, even as he very eloquently, you know, goes into the the all-encompassing, oppressive nature of of government as well. One thing that we haven't actually sort of talked about is also we've mentioned like these sort of metaphors of, of the rot of the heart of England, but there is a very literal metaphor in the terms of the military installation that sort of blighting the landscape of the fen in one of the other horror sequences in the film we see you know this um this car of these like young youths who are quite inebriated i suppose and one of them like goes out and turns back to the car like covered in these strange i want to say they look like burns but they're not quite burns either it's this very alien kind of injury um and we see it looks like something out of doctor who Oh yeah, it definitely has like Br- British vintage science fiction vibes, and it, it's I, and it kind of like straddles that line between like unintentional comedy with the primitiveness of the the special effects, but but because it's never explained fully what happens to him, there's that like terror of the like of the unknown as well, which I I find very very fascinating. Um, Clark in particular as a sort of, has always had a fascination with covert kind of military projects, even though this does have a lot of thematic, you know, similarities with a lot of Clark's more well-known work. It's still a complete anomaly in his career. Solely, I think, in terms of the, as I mentioned, the empathy it has with its protagonist. One of the things I always thought that Clark was able to do with such brilliance was that he would take a character like uh, Tim Roth's neo-Nazi made in Britain. He would present the situation that formed, like, you know, his beliefs and outlook on society, but he would never make you empathise with him. But I understand why he is the way he is. Yeah, and the same same can be said of Stephen here, that, you know, Mm. we can empathise with him, even if, you know, we don't take quite such an evangelical view of Christianity and, and society we can see why he feels that way and what's caused him to have those views. And that actually a bit of life experience and a bit of sort of understanding that comes with maturity. I mean, he's, he doesn't seem, he's supposedly 18 in this film, but he doesn't seem 18. No, he, he doesn't quite, look 18 at all. He, 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 looks, <laughs> he looks quite a lot, a lot younger than 18. And I, I, I think that, you know, there's a certain empathy that one can feel with someone so young and naive you know considering that this isn't a very long film mm. he completely changes in his outlook by the oh, end oh it's it's, it's a it's a brilliant character arc you come yeah. you initially start off seeing him as this kind of like oh repulsive little you know tory twerp in a, well, in exactly. a way. <laughs> but exactly it, but that, like, that, to, to put it perhaps uh, slightly more crudely than I was well attempting. yes <laughs> <laughs> um, but but it's the it's the brilliance of Clark's direction and Rudkin's writing that you know that you're with him on this process of of self discovery and um, evaluation, which I I found you know very relatable at, at, at points. Speaking speaking quite frankly, you know when you're because it's it's not just his conceptions of self 
that are challenged. It is conception of, of nationhood, which is why I wanted to quickly segue into, I think, my favorite character and the most fascinating character of, of Pendersfed, which is his adopted father, the priest, a religious man who's still so multifaceted and tolerant and, you know, just so aware of the of the structure in which he inhabits. Oh, just such a, a brilliant performance as as well. I wanted to ask um, your thoughts of him. Yeah, it's interesting because part of this podcast series is to look at these the representations of gender in these films. It's very difficult to talk about representations of women in this film because mm. they're not really... There, there aren't many female characters. The mother no. is is not presented as being co- as complex a character mm. as as the priest as you say so actually as a sort of portra- representation of masculinity and, and male gender identity i think it's it's particularly fascinating with the priest what i really liked because i think this is true of a lot of religious leaders that i've sort of known over the years chaplains at university or um, my vicar in my village growing up was that i think as a child you assume that someone who has got to that position in the church has a sort of unwavering faith in the existence mm. of God. And right. you know, actually, I think that the most relatable and empathetic religious figures are the ones who actually acknowledge to some element of doubt or agnosticism mm. in their in their approach to faith. I think that's a very mature and realistic approach to theology. And mm. I think that takes Stephen aback when his own father tells him that, 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 you know, he doesn't, when he says, do you believe in God? He says, I believe in, in truth, which I think is, is, is a much better answer Um, (laughs) because, because it, it it gets at the idea that really what Christianity and what spirituality is about isn't so much a belief in sort of the bearded white man in the sky. It's, it's a belief Mm. in, in right, in moral right, in ethics, and in um, in really what actually the pagan religions were celebrating. You know, he when he says Stephen says they worship the devil, and he says, well, no, <laughs> any modern religion just dismisses previous gods as the devil because mm. they can't possibly be the one god. But actually, that what 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 pagans were believing in and what they were celebrating was was what they felt was was moral right. I love the example he cites of Joan of Arc in that regard. Joan of Arc is my favourite historical figure. Mm. I find her absolutely fascinating. The reason why I prefer Bresson's trial of Joan of Arc to Dreyer's mm. Passion of Joan of Arc mm. is because it is just a very straightforward representation of the trial record as a medievalist at heart, I find that much more compelling and the, the, just sort of allowing the dialogue to stand um, rather than sort of it sort of being expressed through facial expression and through um, intertitles, which of course Dreyer has to do because it's a, a silent film, whereas mm-hmm. Bresson's film can, the script is just the trial record. And if you read the mm-hmm. trial record and, re- and watch the film, it's a very mm-hmm. realistic depiction. Did the, did the trial record mention Joan's paganism then in that regard? No, she, you know, she was accused of being a witch. She was accused of being um, a witch because she claimed to have been well. One of the one of the main reasons why she's eventually burned at the stake, despite having previously been acquitted, was because she talked about hearing the voices of saints, which is to some extent blasphemy in the eyes of the Catholic Church. You know, there's no evidence that who you're talking to are the saints. I mean, they believe that she's talking to the devil, which is, of course, the main symptom of witchcraft is that you you have contact with, with Satan. I mean, if 
we still burnt people at the stake. Stephen would be burnt at the stake if he if he ever started, you mm. know, saying, "Oh, I've been in contact with King Pender," um, <laughs> because, because that would that would be that would be dismissed in the same way that he had been in contact with with Satan. I mean, maybe he wouldn't have been burnt because he was a man. <laughs> well, it's, it's only when women claim to have been, you know, when men claim to have been prophets and have had communion with the with God, um, you know, yeah. that, that that they're canonized as as saints. Whereas um, when it's when it when it's a woman, burn the witch <laughs> yeah. starts. Lisa. Getting, um, but yeah, it's it's fascinating that that's the point of reference, and I think it's very for someone in the church to make clear the fact that what Joan was doing and what she was we, she was talking about is something that actually centuries later we feel stronger relation to than perhaps the experiences of some of the other prophets who are canonized much more comfortably within mm. the history of the church. Mm. I also think the reference to Joan as well, bringing it back to Clark, it's a very political kind of perspective of just you know the forces of, of paganism of local faith being utilized to literally um fight back against you know a, ki- a kingdom you know i mean because because i imagine i imagine there are probably a lot of um marxist you know socialist readings into you know joan of arc as a historical figure overcoming gender stereotypes you know of her day to, lit- to literally be both a literal and a figurative symbol against English tyranny and fighting back against that. And I think um, Clark's very interested in the sort of political ramifications of that. Because heading on to the climactic scene, it can be interpreted as both Stephen overcoming his own metaphorical and literal demons regarding his sense of identity and sense of self. But I think it can also be analysed in a sort of sense of the modern order of Britain being fought back by the land, if you like. I don't know if you're familiar with like English Civil War notions of, you know, common ownership, like movements like the levellers and the diggers, you know, these sort of proto-communist movements who are fascinated with communal living. I think there's very much an element of that to be discovered in, in Pender's in Pender's Fen, being in tune with the harmonious nature of the land, you know, paganism as not just a religion but as a sort of environmentalist way of humanity respecting the place in which they live in yeah it's in, it's interesting in that respect then you could compare it to, to the films of ben wheatley i mean i'm i'm not hmm. a wheatley expert but certainly i'm thinking i'm thinking of field in england and, and kill list i, I think of... i i think i'm glad you mentioned i think weekly does cite pendus fen as, as a you know well not necessarily an infamous like a formative film you watched you know growing up so I, i'm glad you you mentioned yeah. him i think it is interesting to look at this film in the context of other british films which which are trying to get in touch with a similar aspect of british history particularly in terms of sort of the folk religions and the, and, and folk practices um, we've mentioned the wicker man which looking at that the other one mm. i wanted to mention was um paul wright's arcadia which entirely mm. pulls from archival footage of 
pagan practices um things like mm. village festivals and maypole dancing and those sort of mm. incredible costumes of like the dragon that goes mm-hmm. through the, the you know you see a lot of it in the wicker man and it's 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 fascinating mm-hmm. to watch arcadia because it's so much of the footage uses that and then what Wright so brilliantly does is he draws parallels between what we sort of dismiss as very primitive practices and perhaps even vulgar practices with footage of Trinity College's Mabel at Cambridge. And as a, as a Trinitarian, it's quite, it was quite striking um, mm. to look at the sort of indulgence of that all-night-long party of the sort mm. of May week, which is May Day and May festivities is sort of rooted in that paganism. And to see how a critique can be angled at that kind of extravagance and indulgence and, and, and privilege and how a past can meet present in that way. So obviously in the case of Pender's Fen, it's fictionalised and it's done through setting it in the present day, but making mm. references to that past. Um, and in the end, when pender appears himself sort of causing time periods to cross over whereas in arcadia it's 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 a case of cutting and editing and moving between real footage of more recent footage and and older footage and how our relationship with the land with the sort of um exalted idea of our of britain as arcadia can reveal something about ourselves it's not just about the present it's not just about the past it's very much about the two crossing over in, in a very yeah. unique and interesting way i mean jarman's the, films do it all the time sure the, the past never dies you know as, as william Faulkner, you know once put it i think in terms of in placing like i i'm not an expert on on folk horror by by any means but from my cursory knowledge of it what i find fascinating about pendus fen is that it doesn't indulge i think in some of the the cliches the you know the visual motifs people associate you know with the genre because much as i like wicker man there is a critique of it you know i think to be made about you know the of its of it painting you know paganism as the sort of savage you know untamed um bacchanalia obsessed with you know sex and orgies and human sacrifice and all that and even in sort of um as glorious as that can all look on screen of of course of course and, <laughs> and as glorious as it might be to partake in that as well indeed if, <laughs> well maybe maybe not human sacrifices but um... well if it's a policeman <laughs> then you know not that i'm trying to you know endorse that kind of thing the songs but, uh, are but... great though Oh yes, yes. But the, <laughs> but the but the point I'm trying to sort of Sorry. get at here. Oh no, 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 it's fine. Uh, the point I'm trying to sort of you know um, get to with this is that um, by stripping away, and also I guess I suppose what you, some might call the appropriation of pagan aesthetics, you know, in the in the modern day as well, in in a in a sense. But the thing, but Pendersfen strips paganism to its like to its spiritual ethos rather than its um, visual, its visual aesthetics. It's not this kind of, you know, um, psychedelic freak out, um, like colorful Wheatley's, rainbow. Sorry? Like, like Wheatley's Field in England, where it's like... Yeah, yeah, it's... Yeah. Ma- magic mushroom-fueled psychedelia. Yeah, exactly, you know, LSD, Pink Floyd, bizarreness. But rather it gets to this kind of ideological spiritualist, anti-imperialist and focused, as I mentioned previously, you know, being 
harmonious with the land and tending the land, not using your power, I suppose, sort of like fight against against others. In fact, what I find fascinating about about Ender as a figure is the way he's kind of posited as you know, a uh, I don't say a martyr because that's a Christian term, <laughs> which I don't think Pender would have been very happy with. But this kind of rebellious figurehead, you know, fighting against the tide of you know encroaching modernity as well. And I think that's such a unique perspective on on paganism that's not really explored as as much. It's kind it kind of falls into the wasteland, you know, of of exploitation of exploitation filmmaking, which can be fun and which can be sort of you know great to watch if you're especially if you're a horror aficionado. But it's this kind of imbalance, I think, that sort of, that shapes the perception of paganism as just being you know an excuse for hippies to give forth with each other and smoke marijuana and which uh, which you would like. associate with the seventies and sort of hippie culture at that time. That leads quite nicely onto what I want to talk about as sort of like rounding it up and sort of contextualizing this film is how is um the legacy of Pender's Fen and what's its status now it, you kind of have to sort of wrap it up as well side with Alan Clark's career because even though Alan Clark is such a seminal um he's simultaneously a seminal yet rather criminally underrated filmmaker his works have recently been reissued by the the bfi which wraps up most of his work for the bbc including including this how yeah yes which is how i I first discovered it um i I was writing as i said an essay on uh element and uh contact and i just decided well i bought the box set so i might as well go into it and i sort of my, my initial reaction to bizarre wonderment and sort of um great emotional relatability to it. But for a while, um, Pendersfen became this kind of like urban myth of the TV play, you know, like hush whispers of it, you know, people trying to find recordings of it. But also at the same time, despite its cult status, you don't really see too much of its influence as compared to like Clark's more modern works, with the exception, I think, of Ben Wheatley, who I think holds it with a, a good deal of affection in his heart because you know he's very much in love with that kind of period of British filmmaking you know the 70s in particular but I think that's what makes Pen- Pender's Fen so the fact that it's such an anomaly in general you know it's almost uncategorizable it's so it's so difficult to place a to place a marker on it and that's what I love about it so much you know, it's it it is itself. It it is it and only it. Yeah, and I I, I think that thankfully, play for today is something that more and more people are becoming aware of. Who perhaps you know mm. didn't didn't live through it the first time round when it was when it was mm-hmm. broadcast mm-hmm. in the seventies. And even though I think that some of the play for today's have been aided by the status of certain directors later on. So Clark is definitely one of them, Mike Lee, Ken mm-hmm. Loach, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. a number of different playwrights and, mm-hmm. and directors who have gone on to have bigger careers than just mm-hmm. sort of TV plays. When retrospectives are pre- presented, people like to look at seminal works and, and their early stuff. So I think I think that that's what causes something like um, Pender's Fen to be prioritised for restoration and re-release. The BFI are currently producing box sets of like six different play for today's at a time in um, a volume mm, series. Yes, yes, I really first heard of Pender's Fen um, fairly recently on BBC4. There was a documentary about the history of play for today, of which mm. Pender's Fen sort of struck me as this 
bizarre um, inclusion <laughs> within that series. And I'd, I'd seen like Abigail's Party, Nuts in May, things like that previously because mm. they've been shown on the television and they're fairly accessible on DVD as well. Because I am weirdly obsessed with um, <laughs> lists of the greatest British films at the moment. Um, <laughs> t- uh, the, the, the one that I, I, because I don't, personally, I wouldn't include TV films on lists of greatest films anyway, but um, Time Out did in their list of the 100 best British films. This is, Penderson is, is included on that list, which I thought was oh. was quite fascinating because it's, it's not, because nowadays I think that it's harder to distinguish between what's a TV film and what's a cinematic, a, a feature film because mm. Um, mm. things like Netflix and Amazon and particularly in COVID where, yeah. you know, yeah things just can't get cinematic releases do we dismiss every film that's been released straight mm. to streaming but just because it's not being shown <laughs> in the cinema um it may it mm. makes that categorization somewhat more challenging whereas Pender's Fan is very much something commissioned by tv made for tv broadcast on tv mm. but it is a film it feels like a film i mean it's quite low budget the effects mm. are as we said something akin to Tom Baker era Doctor Who, but um, <laughs> <it's>, right. it, <laughs> but having said that, it's very much something that anyone interested in the history of British cinema should should be watching. It's it's fascinating and it's it's a really wonderful piece of work, I'd say. And particularly if you're interested in representations of of sexuality and how that's changed from films like Basil Durden's Victim through. Sunday Bloody Sunday, Kenneth Anger's films, you know, the, the, and mm. the, right through to Derek Jarman, and then more modern films like Francis Lee's um, God's Own Country and Ammonite. You know, this is mm. if you if you're interested in that history and how those representations have changed over time, I would very much urge people to to seek Pender's Fan out. Yeah, I I agree completely. I mean, in terms of charting, I guess it's a a cinematic lineage for Pendleton. I think it's quite difficult. But if you place it in the context of, as you you mentioned, the sort of like wider movement of um, of SR fascinated with deconstructing identity and nationhood, then I think it fits very snugly in that. It just happens to be directed by a person who's more notable for directing rather masculine deconstructions that like, don't tend to really examine the homoerotic issues, rather they're sort of uh, deconstructions of heterosexual identity, really. Thank you so much. I I really appreciate it. No no worries. It's been a pleasure um, podcasting with you. I hope to be able to do it again in in the future. If you've got an idea for an article or a podcast, you can contact me via Twitter. My handle is at Lil Craw for three hours in Lil, which is where I'll be posting about new writing and episodes. Do also get in touch if you fancy appearing as a guest and have a film you'd love to discuss with me. The Listen to Lillian podcast is available via the blog and all the usual channels, including Spotify, Google and Apple Podcasts, so don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. All that remains for me to say is thank you for listening and toodle pip! Bye.